In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witness. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming. Everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. They're going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Welcome back to the End Sons Podcast, guys. I'm Sam. And I'm Blaine. And today we are joined by the inimitable Brad Beck, who is the our vice president? Is Exe- that your or, uh, I'm asking executive, executive director. Well, I, is that better than being VP? Um... Who do you negotiate with? It depends on what you're signing. Yeah. Um, VP kind of in relation to the board, but executive director as far as function. Yeah. Well, we just call him the Supreme Chancellor just to try and circumnavigate (laughs) all of that. I've been calling him Brad this whole time. Dexters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, when you're a small team. And I actually, this, we've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time, Brad, because of the the variety of stories and experiences and roles you've had in your life. Um, Mm -hmm. As I was saying beforehand, like any single one of them would feel like an end unto itself. And we're going to get there for those of you listening. Like don't worry, I'm (laughs) not just using this as background. That's, this is part of the, of where we're headed, but I actually want you to take us into the cockpit (laughs) and tell us the story of when you got the stick and you got to just floor it, um, was it 1.2? Um, right. I was flying a T-38 with NASA. Um, we are out of a, a military area and uh, had an instructor pilot in the front seat. And I'm in the back seat. And it's called a familiarization flight. So they give you the stick and you get to push it through uh, afterburner and go up beyond Mach 1. So I was about 1.2, 1.3 over the Gulf of Mexico in a very safe airspace, thankfully. So I wasn't running into airliners or anything else. Delta so, wasn't needing to avoid you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wasn't um, sonic booming um, over a residential area. That's thoughtful. You know, when you fly, you don't hear the sonic boom. It's behind you when you fly through Mach. That's why I've never heard a sonic boom. (laughs) I just assume it's somewhere behind me. What if you run through the sonic boom? (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't you sometimes go with pilots while they would test different flight patterns? There was something that was like a launch A launch profile, yes. Um astronaut named Ken a couple days before the flight and they have an opportunity to fly their T-38s and the astronauts don't like to do that for some reason but this guy loved to fly and I noticed he was on the schedule and um, no one was flying with him and I, I said Ken can I fly with you and he says oh this would be great yeah sure so we go out take off off the shuttle landing facility and he said, um, I'm going to do shuttle launch profiles. 
And I'm um, like, uh, okay. And he said, well, you know what I'm talking about? I say, I have no idea. So he said, I'll, I'll, show, I'll show you one and then you'll get to do one. And I said, okay. So we're right, uh, right in Kennedy Space Center airspace. And um, we have a military area next to it. And he says, okay, here's what we do. So we um, fly along the ground as low as we can go, which is like 500 feet. And then um, we'll kick it in the afterburner. And then as soon as we pull up next to the launch pad where the actual shuttle is sitting, we'll just pull the stick back, go vertical, and we'll go as high as we can go um, following the path that the space shuttle would take into space, only with T-38, you don't have much thrust. So, you know, you're, you're going to stop at about 30,000 feet. So we do that. We're at 500 knots. We're 500 feet off the ground. And um, I the things are going so fast, I can't see where we're at because 500 miles an hour, 500 feet off the ground is really, really, really fast. and <laughs> It sounds fast. It, it, it sounds low. It sounds low. Can't make out things. But he's in the front. And so we get up to the launch pad. And I see the shuttle on my left. And he just pulls the stick back, go vertical. I almost, I gray out my, we're pulling six Gs. And um, my vision goes down to like zero. And, but I can see the instrument and see that we're vertical. And then, you know, we bleed off airspeed. We get up to about 30,000 feet and we're going about a hundred knots at that point. Um, and then we just sort of fall over back towards the earth and he's let me do one. So we lined up, he talked me through the whole thing, which I needed because I'm not a great T-38 pilot. And so- Me neither. Go go vertical and and uh, go through the roll, roll program where you turn 90 degrees into the flight of the uh, the inclination that we're flying into. And then at, at 100 knots, we just kind of fall over and just do the whole thing. I think we did it three or four times. When you say fall over, you're talking, you kind of roll backwards. Roll backwards. Onto the canopy. Yeah. Do you remember... Could you see straight down? Did you oh, yeah. look at the top and Oh, it was awesome. I mean, you're air. seeing sky and then I you know, you look out the top and I can see the horizon. So straight forward, you're just seeing sky. It was kind of a gray sky. So, um and again, look out the top of the canopy and see the horizon behind me. So as we go up and at a certain airspeed, you don't want to slide back in a T-38 because it's real bad. Um, you get compressor stalls and your engine stops and you don't always successfully relight the engines after you do that. Um, most of the time you do. And so... Uh, I remember looking up 100 knots, you know, barely perceptible, but you can see the airspeed. And then, you know, he said, yeah, you know, pull it, pull it back so that we fall backwards. So you fall and then kind of roll and. Well, you, then you're pointing, you have no airspeed, so you have no lift. So now we're pointed straight to the ground until we get like 200 knots and the wings work at that point. And then you pull back and you go flat again. Okay. Okay. So. There's a lot of points in this story that a ignoramus such as myself would go, 
I don't know what's happening. This sounds amazing. It sounds like something out of a science fiction movie. The first question is, a T-38 is a kind of test airplane. And I've seen the model on your desk. It's got that bubble canopy. So you right. are like, it feels like something out of a retro, like Top Gun movie, except it's not one of those fighter jets. This is like a, you're exposed, you can look around. Right. And the other question that comes to mind is, what is your role that you were walking up to an astronaut and saying, hey, I notice you don't have anybody sitting behind you on this test flight. And he goes, oh, right. sure, you can come. Right. So a T-38 is a is a supersonic trainer air, aircraft, and that's the T of the 38. And late- T I, for supersonic? T for trainer. Ah. So, um, and it is like the second- jet aircraft that an Air Force pilot would transition into. So the first one's slower, um, T-38's much faster. So and it's it's more akin to a fighter. You know, it has more performance characteristics of a typical, like, a, um, oh, gosh, I just blanked, on um, F-18, F-16 mm -hmm. uh, type uh, designation. So um, you're right. I mean, like when I see Top Gun and when I see Top Gun previews, when it's coming out yeah, in June, um, I go right back. I mean, the visuals are the same mm. but, uh, because the bubble canopy is meant to give you uh, visibility for dogfighting and for bombing and whatever else you need. And also, um, um, and also, uh, formation flying. So you can see the other aircraft that you're flying, you're tucking in with. And so, the, so the T-38, um, that's, that's, NASA had them to keep their pilots uh, proficient in jet training. So, um, so that's that. How I got, how I got to fly in back seats was, um, I was a flight surgeon and um, for NASA. So I was a doctor to the astronauts and their families to some degree, but my official job was to the astronauts. So when I was assigned to a crew for a particular space shuttle mission, um, I, would I would get to fly with them. So I would fly with them to the Cape and then... Um, and to some, sometimes on some other training runs as well. But so I was down, I would fly down with the crew uh, for launch. And then when I was there uh, is when the opportunity came up to be able to fly with them two days before their flight. So rather than calling you Supreme Chancellor, they'd call you Dr. Beck. Yes, they would. That was one of the reasons I went to work for NASA, um, because I knew I could fly jets. So you mentioned <laughs> among all the other ones. Yeah, well, yeah, there's, there's other there's oh. other things that were fun. You mentioned formation. Yes. And Sam and I have heard a story about formation once upon a time. Right. Did you ever fly formation, Brad? I did. I even, um, I was uh, trained a little bit. Uh, formation flying was hard, to be real honest especially flying that fast. And so I had the opportunity 
um, to fly down for one particular mission. I was flying to the Cape with the crew. They had enough. They had enough um, pilots in the crew that they had a bunch of empty back seats. So I'm flying. It's nighttime, and the guy in the front seat. Um, a lot of astronauts go through. Not only are they test pilots, and they go through that training, which is something that helps them become an astronaut. They were often instructor pilots somewhere along the way. So they would be in, they like at some point in their history would have been an instructor pilot in that in a T-38 teaching people who are just transitioning into that plane, all the stuff that they need to know. So they were kind, they were gracious. They would give me tips and pointers and things to do and, and, um, talk me through proper procedures. And so we're flying to the Cape and it's nighttime and we're above a cloud deck and um, we're probably 30, 32,000 feet. And the whole crew, so there's five T-38s and we're in a V formation. The guy in front says, um, have you flown formation? I go, no. I mean, I've been in formation, you know, but I've had no idea how they were doing it. And so he said, hey, do you want to learn? I said, I'll take a crack at it. So <laughs> he said, this is what you do. This is how you how you run the throttle. This is how you ease up. You develop a sight line, some visual cues. So it's a moonlit night and full moon. We're above a cloud deck. So it's white below. It's like white puffy clouds below clear sky above it and he's teaching me how to fly closer and closer to another T-38 that's going we're probably going 600 miles an hour so 600 knots and so we're easing up and as I said I could get to a certain distance I mean these guys would fly three to six feet apart from each other all, all the time they would do that through clouds and it was like freaking me out you know, because they literally all they could see the was the wing, and they still knew enough to be able to follow that wing perfectly. I'm in a clear situation, and I'm like easing up to this thing. And then as I get closer and closer, I get like start oscillating. I go high, I go too fast, I go be in front of the guy, which is not good. I'm supposed to be following behind, and I go too far behind. And all the while, this guy in front is is telling is coaching me, encouraging me, you know, like, okay, that was too fast. You you know, when you spool up, you, you've got to anticipate a little bit better. You're too high, you're too low. And they, they were giving me all kinds of tips about how you slow, if you pull up, you slow down a little bit, and then it, it gives you an, another chance to be able to kind of speed up and get into the right situation. So... <laughs> So but you, I was the visuals oh. were incredible. I mean, not only was I, I, I mean, the visuals were incredible, and I mean, it was exhausting. I think I probably did this for thirty minutes and felt like I had, you know, run five miles or something. It was just um, emotionally and physically exhausting to pay that much attention mm -hmm. to what you're doing because I knew. I, in my mind, I, I could hit this guy's wing and knock his wing off and or vice versa. And so the stakes are very high. The stakes were high, although over the cloud deck at yeah, 600 over, miles per at hour. 600 miles an hour. Golly. <laughs> we have five 
gleaming white fighter planes. So that was a lot like our most recent um, director's meeting. It right? was you know, very like similar to Information, that. trying to not clips off somebody else's wing. Walking with Jesus and the whole, yes, something like that. <laughs> All right, oh. one, at least one more. So we asked one time about best experiences in mission control. And oh, yeah, there's a story that was a satellite capture. Right. What was the deal with that? Uh, there was a mission, and um, there was a satellite that was launched off a booster and a rocket, and the booster rocket uh, malfunctioned. It didn't um, shoot the satellite into geosynchronous orbit, which is much higher. So um, NASA offered to go up and pull the booster off of the satellite and put a new one on and, and use the space shuttle to do it. So uh, the crew trained to be able to do that. So shuttle launched with five crew and three uh, EVA um, astronauts, in other words, spacewalks, extravehicular activity. What they were supposed to do is go out, capture the satellite with a device that was going to lock on to the, the bottom ring of the satellite, and then pull it into the shuttle bay, pull the bad motor off, and put the good rocket on, and then launch it back into space. The only thing is, the first astronaut that was sent out to, to capture Intelsat, um, it didn't work. They, there was a bunch of attempts, and the satellite kept getting away. The capture device and the method didn't work as advertised. So they decided, they came up with plan B overnight, and they decided to put three astronauts outside, put them in a triangle, and then fly the space shuttle up to the satellite and have all three guys grab the satellite on the on the uh, rim of the bottom rim of the satellite all at once. Okay, okay. Wait, wait. Pausing you there. This is a this is a room full of very intelligent people that are trying to catch a very expensive piece of equipment with three valuable lives that are skilled in space and somebody in the room has to be the one to say, "Well, why don't we just grab it?" Right. Well, um, actually, the crew was working on it, and the ground was working on it. You know, it was, it wasn't exactly Apollo thirteen. You know, it, with the movie and and uh, all the things that went went wrong, and and how they rescued that flight. But there was a bit of an air of let's figure out how to do this, and then while. Th they were coming up with the thought. They took a day off. They actually went into the uh, the huge water tank and put three astronauts into the water tank, which is where they train for the spacewalks, and to see if they could like what it what it was like. Like even where do you locate three astronauts so that they're kind of a triangle and they can all grab because you don't want them three on one side. The satellite's actually spinning slowly, so it uh, stabilizes some things that spin are more stable in weightlessness. So they're 
up there. And um, so they train on the ground. They send a bunch of notes up to the crew. The crew had been thinking about the exact same thing. And they all agreed um, it was actually pretty low risk, they thought. Um, the, the shuttle could immediately pull away if something went wrong, if the satellite started tilting and hitting the shuttle. Uh, the commander could fly the shuttle away. So when the, they stabilized Intelsat, it's spinning real slowly. Commander gets in the area and he literally flies the payload bay back up with three astronauts now in their little positions. So they come back up so that they all are able to reach the satellite comfortably, like eye height. And, um, you know, I was in there. I was in, I was in mission control when it was all happening. And one of the astronauts um, counted to three. One, the, the, the satellite's moving around their fingers while they're holding on, they're not holding onto the rim yet. And then they count to three and they all just like grabbed it at once and it stopped. Then they were able to put on this device that was then able to bring it back into the payload bay. The mission ended up being a success, even after all that that went on. It was it was exciting. It was really fun to to watch all of it happen and be a part of it in Mission Control. Yeah, I like I can't even. <laughs> it's incredible. You guys who are listening are beginning to see why this this backdrop of these different moments and trajectories, sometimes <laughs> literally, um, I like pique some interest. And I want the cut scene that is, you know, you are 500 feet off the ground. Trees are a blur. Astronaut in the front seat says, okay, now, you know, you're, you're watching the shuttle on the pad yeah. get closer and closer. Right. And then cut to... Huh, why was there a withholding increase on this month's payroll? I didn't see that come across. And, and simply go a part of this conversation uh, is living the epic. <laughs> and after looking at these exceptional stories, mm -hmm. what are some of the things that allow you to come be an executive and administrate at a desk in right. Resident Heart. Well, in many senses, like boot camp is epic. Epic in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, our missions together, um, even, even reading, I mean, like... Reading the story of the guy who um, heard something about John's podcast. He went back to 2009, started listening to our podcast. He's up to 2014. He's listened to 50 podcasts a year times that many years, six years, five, six years. And um, he describes how it's changing his life. Mm -hmm. um, when we get to pray for a guy after the wound session and you find out what he's dealing with and 
you pray for him and and you get a vision of a rescue and I get a vision of a of a pararescue jumper and and actually thinks that it's it's Jesus in the water and I can see him talking to the guy pulling the guy out of the water mm. that's epic also it may not be 500 knots at that particular time or pulling 6 Gs but it's it's epic and so although my role is administrative I feel like I'm contributing towards the epic in what we do as a ministry. Oh, I, I would do want to flesh out a couple of the in-between dots. <laughs> There's uh, a few dots uh, in between, like the few that I, yeah. 35 years of dots. There's 35 years of dots. And some of that's with focus on the family and some of that's right. volunteering as a football coach and all of these, like I just hold up a few of those, like medical professional working with NASA, working with like one of the world's largest nonprofits so that, that focuses right. height and then being even being a football coach like <laughs> is is an end goal for a lot of people like that right. that is a that can be mythic and epic and you're going after high school boys and their hearts and this the larger story for their their year often and right. and then to be at this stage with ransom heart getting to events getting to pray for a guy who's like weeping right as Jesus is coming for him I I want as much as is possible like can you can you identify what what you end up holding on to as you've made those shifts did those shifts feel obvious as you moved from one to the next or did it feel like there was some question you're asking yourself like is Jesus in this is this aligning does this feel epic or was it desire-based, like I'm thinking as a 20-year-old man going, how do you, not only how did you achieve one of those, how do you move and navigate and maintain the epic through all of that? Right. And, you know, I personally, it was very much one step at a time. I, you know, if you had asked me, I was, if I was, you know, I was in medical school, became a Christian in college, was in pre-med, felt like um, God was calling me into medicine. So um, there was an easy like fleece for that personally. Um, like, can I get into medical school? I mean, nobody in my family, I didn't know any doctors other than my family doctor. Could I even get into medical school? And then becoming a Christian in college and then asking God what's you know, is, is this medicine? Is am I, am I supposed to still go into medicine? Um, and felt like Jesus said yes. And I got into almost every medical school I applied to. Felt then called to one particular one. And actually, I was called to that particular one. I didn't know anybody at the school. But I felt like there was some ministry, actually. There was some spiritual reason to be, to be there at mm -hmm. University of Kentucky. And so started there and it ended up just having an, an incredible fellowship of Christian, like-minded Christian men and women in my class. And um, it was a fellowship that um, completely enabled me to live, you know, well in, in in through medical school and then picking residencies 
yeah, felt like desire to some degree. I was I was good at during my surgery rotation. Decided to go into general surgery, and but one of the reasons I was real aware of was that I wanted to go to Cincinnati, where I knew of this church that was very life giving and very affirming, very mission oriented. And I actually was feel like I was picking the church in the city rather than my than my surgery profession at the at that moment. Wow. So um, so when is this, went into surgery and then that that was a tough thing. I, I it didn't go well. I was I was um, I was very beat up emotionally uh, through the training program, which was real common. It's probably still is real common in in medical training programs. And so I ended up actually leaving the surgery residency. But I had been living as a member of an extended family uh, with a pastor and his family of five kids. And I, God was in that experience and in that spiritual training for me while I was going to, even more so than I think the medical training. Mm. So went into emergency medicine, practiced that for a while, went through a lot of spiritual growth at the church, counseling, went through a lot of inner healing, spiritual and prayer healing. Mm. That was really foundational and helped kind of form me um, in my single life, met Lisa, married her, and she had spent time with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and really felt like we were going to be called back into some sort of Christian ministry, even though I was working as a doctor in emergency medicine at that point. So got married. We had the opportunity to go with YWAM for a year, our second year of marriage. And that was so foundational. I mean, that great teaching, great experiences. You're you're on the edge, always spiritually, you know, walking with God, very dependent on him. We're in the Philippines for outreach. Just crazy, crazy stories and opportunities and watch God move throughout people groups and throughout your team young young adults and um, had the opportunity to Lisa and I headed up a team even though we weren't on staff we were kind of student leaders of this team and it was a medical base and so we went and did sort of like simple medical things but I was on a drama team with Lisa and these uh, seven other guys and girls and watching the gospel kind of lived out and so all the way from there, aerospace medicine, I, I loved the space program and felt like God was honoring a desire in me, found out about this training program up at Wright State, applied to it, was accepted. Um, so our third year of marriage, we're back in Dayton, Ohio, and I'm going through another residency program. And um, I had favor. I did well in the program, got to go to NASA where I got to experience all these flying stories and and satellite capture stories and begin to have kids down in Houston and aerospace medicine. It, it's medicine. It's not really a mission field. It's not particularly a faith journey. I had great fellowship there. A lot of Christians around me. Um, 
God was so awesome to provide Christian friends and and uh, through our church and through NASA that actually some of our friends we still hang out with and see a couple times a year. At that point, I realized that a lot of my skills were not so much medicine, but organizational and project and administrative. And so I ended up working for an airline for a while, working for, after NASA, working for an airline for a while, and then working for a university. And then we had the opportunity to go to a physician's conference up at in Colorado Springs at Focus on the Family. So when I did that, they were looking for a physician to come on staff. And so they were hiring one. And um, Lisa and I talked about it and prayed about it. I applied, and about nine months later, we had just moved to beautiful Colorado Springs in September of 1996. So ran a ministry area for medical professionals and mainly administrative, but outreach to other doctors and their families. And it was going super, super well until it wasn't going super, super well. Uh And they got rid of the magazine and they downsized my department. And Jesus said, well, it's, it's time. It's time to go. Mm. And um was really sad about that, but felt like Jesus was in it. And so left, went into practice for a while, full-time practice. That didn't go well and very well. And then I was, oh gosh, um, I was, uh, I would, I was a camp doctor for a lot of the early boot camps, like in early 2000. So I was around Ransom Tart. I was like in the first or second circle outside the ministry. And um, I contacted somebody here and I, I said, hey, I'm, look, I'm looking for work. I don't know uh, if you guys hear of anything that you think I'd be eligible for, um, let me know. And so somebody contacted me and said that there was project work here, needed help with benefits, needed help with the medical plan, needed help with uh, payroll and taking care of a bunch of projects for the building. And so I came on, I worked six months, I got that finished and wrapped up. Then they asked me to do a few more projects and then they kept kind of giving me more stuff to do and they just said, oh, just just stay. So I'll just stay and be vice president. Whittle them down. That was was 14 years ago. So I was kind of COO and then just ended up, um, yeah, getting more stuff to do and kind of working through uh, administratively, uh, just getting kind of more and more handed to me throughout the, throughout the years. What I'm so struck by of your story is that like the piece that we've thrown out there for young guys often, if there's not being wasted time, it's like that I see those, those, those threads in your story of I'm, I'm doing this, but I'm actually pursuing Jesus. And while I'm gaining one skill, which looks like medicine, I'm also gaining all these administrative skills all right. that both end up coming into play in different ways. And there's decisions based on desire. There's decisions based on skill sets there's things not going well. And I find that actually so refreshing to hear you name <laughs> some of those seasons of like, oh, I tried this residency. It didn't go well. Right. I tried doing just 
Mount practice. It didn't, didn't go, go well. well. It's like, oh, okay, right. So the, the NASA doctor is capable of, <laughs> of not, like everything just doesn't go well. It's not all perfect. It's not all smooth. But there's, it, from, well, from 30,000 feet and right. from the perspective you have now, the threads to me at least feel very definitive. I was, I'm curious if they felt clear in the moment. If as you were moving from one thing to the next, if you were like, you know, this seems like really obvious. It's a blend of ministry and a blend of Henderson and my administrative skills, and therefore this is a no-brainer. Like, was right. it was it clear in the moment? If oh. you can drop yourself back. Oh, not at all. Um, it it felt it felt organic, and it felt like maybe I knew what the next step was when I left. Um, Boy, I mean, there were just like, just like huge uh, unknowns. Leaving, leaving focus in particular when the area got downsized, felt like I heard God pretty clearly that that I, there was a, a corner I was supposed to turn, and um, you know, I there just wasn't like an obvious opportunity. I actually kind of talked this doctor into taking me on as his, as his partner. He had a Christian practice and he was a great Christian man, but uh, he wasn't looking to have anybody come alongside him, but I kind of presented the way that I could do this and see if it would work. And um, it just didn't go well. I wasn't very good at it, to be honest. I, I, it, it, medicine had changed enough and that, um, and the administrative th things that I needed to know for that uh, particular job, I was pretty slow at and pretty um, and, and not very gifted at. So I did like taking care of people and I did like praying with people, but I didn't, I wasn't doing well kind of in the clinic. And then, so, you know, like, yeah, I didn't, I mean, Gosh, I remember sending the email out to about five or six close, close friends that I was walking with and said, I, I just have no idea really what's next. But then like the opportunity to work and ransomed heart and do the project work, I realized that oh, I, we had a daughter that had a lot of medical challenges um, right after she was born and then all the way through her life. And so I got really good at handling medical insurance from a consumer point of view. And then when I was at Focus, the benefit department would ask me a bunch of questions about like what we should cover, what we shouldn't cover. Should we be self-insured? Should we go with a big medical insurer? Um, what do you think it is an appropriate number of of medications uh, to offer. And so I'd get drawn into all these administrative medical things, not realizing that literally a year later, I was doing that for Ransom Heart in a completely different context. But I, my, the life skills I had picked up because of having an ill daughter ended up working out really well and helping Ransom Heart come up with a better medical plan. That support for the no wasted time idea is staggering. <laughs> Two questions come up for me. Okay. One is 
how do you still have physicians outreach notepads? Did you take like the whole box on your way out of the building? <laughs> they gave it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They closed the department. <laughs> I just couldn't help but notice, notice every that. time you're taking notes. I'm like, how many years? How do you have another notepad? I literally have a box. It's lasted 12 years. <laughs> So it, you you can't say they failed to make an impact on no wasted time and no wasted notepads. No, no wasted, wasted stationery. I hate to throw things away, as you can tell from my office. There's a cool T38 model in your yeah, office. Yeah, there's a cool T38 model. The other question is, you know, Sam was just calling attention to this. He just talked about it a bit more. But I know many young men who are currently in a season they don't love and and I know from other times hearing about your story, you've worked for really difficult bosses and in the medical profession, run into hard teams and hard seasons. And, you know, for my friends who are in them, it's kind of shocking to hear a difficult season reduced to four words. <laughs> oh, yeah, that didn't go well. And I go, <laughs> wow, it doesn't look like four words right now, but... What are what Maybe are four letter words? trying to shorten yeah. the story a bit? What are some of the things that you tell or would tell, especially younger guys, when they're in the middle of a? Yeah, I just got the job I've been working for, and it's not going well. Or it's not what I'm, I thought. Yeah. Or, or, or my boss <laughs> is not who I thought. Or I followed God, and now I don't have a job. Just. Like some of the some of the pieces um, of experience spoken back into those seasons. Yeah, um, you know, I think that the um, you know faith that that um, you didn't mess up along the way that you're trying to take the next step, and as, as long as you're not doing something like overtly out of character or out of your gift set. I, I wasn't like doing things that, you know, I wasn't trying to be a, a brain surgeon because I had no training in it. So kind of looking at what next steps are in trying and, and taking a step or two. I mean, like the aerospace thing would have complete, if, if I hadn't been accepted, if I hadn't prayed about the application, if I hadn't talked to Lisa, because we were married at that point, if I hadn't talked to Lisa about, hey, is this, you know, do you agree that this is at least the next step? It, it doesn't feel like I'm going to work in the aerospace industry for the next 30 to 35 years, but can we agree this would be a next step? First of all, I'd do the application. If you don't get accepted, well, then I'm, you know, I'm not going to be an aerospace doctor. Um, so moving towards desire, but, um, checking with your spouse and checking with friends in in other situations and then taking the next step. And then Jesus, you know, it, as far as aerospace, I, it, it was a very natural progression. I knew I wanted to work at NASA. I had met a doctor in the emergency room where I worked who was in this training program and who had finished it and had actually gone down to Houston a few years ahead of me. And so I saw his career path and realized that God willing, I could do that. And I could, that would be a natural and a good thing for our family to do. 
along the way, like moving to Houston ended up being like one of the best things that ever happened for Lisa and I. Uh, we've been married um, at this point, like three and a half years, and Lisa's pregnant. And we were pretty kind of, even though we had gone with YWAM and been in the Philippines and been in Hawaii for training, we would have like not naturally picked Houston, Texas. I mean, to be honest. So, but it had the Johnson Space Center. And so we moved down there. And then when we're down there, we find out we have wonderful churches, wonderful Christian friends, they have job opportunities. I would just say, for me, it, it just felt very organic. There, there were cliffs that I was facing, certainly being let go from focus and not really knowing what was next, but having walked with God enough to know that I felt like I wasn't abandoned, um, he would show me the next next thing. I I had no idea I'd be working here when I left. I had no idea. I I just didn't know. I figured I just I'd be a doctor in a clinic somewhere, and and I would work the next twenty years and then retire. But I had no idea to work here. Mm. I was glad I started working here, and it did fit kind of my my goal, I was using medicine to kind of get into ministry. And um, and if you had told me when I was 25 and graduated medical school that I'd be in a full-time Christian ministry, that wouldn't have completely shocked me. But boy, the path to get there looks serpentine. You know, if you, if you just look at all the different things I've done. I'm actually glad you brought up your... 25, 20 something year old self, because that's the question I want to land with is if you could go back to Brad at 24 and be able to just to offer him a thought, a piece of advice, a piece of counsel, knowing all that lies ahead of him, what would you say to Brad at 24? I think I'd say worry less, uh, trust God more, don't try to plan too far ahead, actually. I never thought much more than, oh, I don't know if I ever thought more than five years ahead. It just felt like I I knew enough of my walk at that point. I kind of didn't have like this ultimate like job that I wanted to like go to and just sit in for 30 to 35 years. Even though NASA was a desire and very, very much an interest for me, I didn't see myself just like going there and parking myself there for 35 years. I felt like uh, God had me on a journey. And, and like the thing that was modeled just a few years later was when, when I was with YWAM, the, the, I had experienced enough of a spiritual journey that I knew my career journey and my, my family journey was not going to be linear. <laughs> it was going to be organic. It was going to branch. It was going to be full of surprises, but it was, it was, 
is the adventure that God called me to. And I trusted him enough, even in my 20s, to know that it may not look like what I'm thinking and I may not know what's going to happen in five or 10 years, but I can trust him in this journey. So my advice to my 25-year-old self would be simmer down, don't sweat the details, and walk with God. Walk with God and, and see where he takes you the next day, the next week, the next month. And don't plan a whole lot longer than that, to be real honest. 